All right, uh, we're going to jump into this as quick as I can. We're going to talk about scripture. We'll take your questions at the end. Uh, one of the dangers today is that a lot of people don't know the scriptures, why we have the scriptures the way that we do, how we can trust them. And so there's a lot of things that come on TV or movies that people say that is just horrible. So I'm going to give you a clip here. Passage I got memorized. Sort of fits the occasion. Ezekiel 25, 17. The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. Blessed is he who in the name of charity and goodwill shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness, for he is truly his brother's keeper and the finder of lost children. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers. And you will know my name is the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon thee. It's not how I pictured this class going. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it doesn't actually even quote it correctly. But there you go. You know, it's, it's crazy what people do with the scriptures today. So tonight... As I show it to you, anyway. Uh, so tonight what we're going to do is we're going to kind of call this our campus. I, li- I like the word campus because when the, when the Romans came in for war, what they would do is they'd clear out like the, like the top of an area where they're all going to camp, and they would encamp on that, and that's where they would wage war from, so they called that their campus. So that's, this is our camp, sort of camp out, uh, about apologetics, so we have this level ground in which to defend our faith. I'm going to start with some words as we jump right in here. I think this could be the new Christian Apple company because they all start with I. We have inerrancy and inspiration and infallibility. Okay, well, whatever. So here we go. All right. Uh, I'm going to go through these. This first word oops, is inspiration. Now, inspiration essentially just means God breathed. God breathed. Some people like to actually use the word inscripturated. The next word is inerrancy, which means that the words of the scripture are without error. The next word is infallibility. This means that the words of the scriptures cannot err. Next word is canonicity. What this means is when you look at the scriptures that we have the right words contained in the Bible. Now today there's an attack on Christianity when people look at the scriptures and they say you can't trust the words. You can't trust that it's been transmitted down to us accurately. Oh, it's been so many centuries. You can't really believe what's there is what they really said. Tonight we're going to show you that you can stand strong in the scriptures that are there. Next word is archaeology. That means that we have the words that have been confirmed through archaeology, that the manuscripts have been transmitted accurately, and then prophecy, that the words have predicted future events accurately. Now, do you see the theme in all this? The words, okay? The words, the words, the words. It's all about the words of Scripture. So as we go through this, I'm going to start with a place that when we look at the, the scriptures, we're going to start what we should understand about the Bible and then move into some of this other stuff. So an in inspiration, the Bible is about God-breathed words. Along with inerrancy and infallibility, it makes the Bible unlike any other book that has ever been written or that mankind has ever seen. The Bible is the only book that God wrote, so it has infinite, which is another 
I word for you. There you go. And has infinite value for the world and especially for Christians. Now, in your notes, I put two verses. Uh, there's Second Timothy 3.16 and 17 and Second uh, Peter 1.21. Second uh, Timothy 3.16 and 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, this word breathed out, all the words are breathed out by God, is this word theanustos. Uh, some people read it like it's phonetically written. It looks like it says theopanestos, but it doesn't, okay? It says theanotos, and that's the word that there. It's breathed out. Second Peter one twenty one. for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The word carried along is this word, it's pharaoh, and it has this idea like people being carried on a ship or a mother carrying a baby in her arms. The baby is carried along. So God breathed. The NIV will use the word inspiration which really isn't deep or strong enough. Uh, this word that means breathed out, it comes from two words. One is God and the other is spirit, wind, or breath. It actually should be translated as, as expirated, breathed out, literally by God. Those are the scriptures. It's not inspirated where you're inhaling, it's exhaling. The Bible is the result, what we believe, of the breath of God, the outflow of his power and the outflow of his creativity. Psalm 33, verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. The same breath that we believe created all the stars and the heavens of the skies, we believe breathed into the scriptures that we have today. When Jesus is tempted in the wilderness by Satan, he responds in Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We believe it is the writings of the scripture that are inspired, all scripture. This is the word graphy where we get like graphite, number two pencil. It's actually the words. The words are the written record. It's the words themselves. The words are inerrant. The words are infallible. The words are in the canon of the scripture. It's the words that have been confirmed by archaeology and prophecy. We believe this goes to the grammatical forms, the verbs, the lolly, 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 get your adverbs here, the conjunction, junction, what's your function? Those are all part of it going together. It's all inspired, and the scripture informs all of our lives. God says to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 26, verse 2, Thus says the Lord, stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah that come to worship in the house of the Lord all the words that I command you to speak to them. Do not hold back a word. Again, it's about the words. This is why Element teaches the scriptures. People will say things like, well, what about the writers? What about the guys who wrote these words? Didn't they have anything to do with it? And our answer to that is yes and no. Uh, we don't know all the logistics behind it. Oh, man, Mikey, it just cut out on me. Okay, good. All right. So we, we don't know all the logistics behind all of how it worked out, but we have uh, some ideas when we look at the Scripture and we place some words on these things. Uh, we are told that the Scriptures are not just the creative processes of man, though today if you go to a lot of college classes, that's what they'll want to tell you. It's just man coming up with these ideas and they're just very creative. And that doesn't when, if you believe that, it doesn't make it different than any other book out there, especially any other holy book. But we believe the Bible is completely different. We believe that the words of the scriptures express God's mind and God's will. And what we call this is plenary verbal inspiration. Plenary verbal inspiration. It's not dictation where God said the words and they wrote the word down. The word plenary means full or complete. 
And so plenary verbal inspiration asserts that God inspired the complete text of the Bible in their fullness, from Genesis to Revelation, including both historical and doctrinal details. The word verbal affirms the idea that the inspiration extends to the very words that the writers chose. For example, Acts 1.16 says... Uh, said, Peter says, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand. So the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. This, again, is the idea that the Holy Spirit is the one who guided, carried the writers as they spoke certain words, allowing their personalities to still come through with the freedom that produces the Bible that we have today. Uh, this view of plenary verbal inspiration, what it does is it affirms both the human and the divine element in the scriptures. Um, first, in, in the first Peter verse that we looked at before, first Peter one twenty one, where the spirit carried them along, this is what's called a present passive participle form. And you're like, what in the world does that mean? Okay, I'll help you. It present, so it's present tense, which is continuous action. Passive means the subject is the recipient of the action of the verb. And so the prophets were being carried along passively as they spoke actively the God-breathed words. That's what it's trying to say. It's, in essence, they were like gloves in the Holy Spirit's hand. That's what that means. They wrote down words with their own personalities and their own idiosyncrasies. Okay, so the question then becomes, what is inspiration not? Okay, good. This thing keeps like going out on me. It's really crazy. What inspiration not? Uh, the idea of plenary verbal inspiration is not the idea of mechanical dictation. That is not what it is. It's not automatic writing, any process that suspends the action of the human writer's mind. It's not like how they say Jonathan Livingston Siegel was written. Anybody know that? Okay, just whatever. Just me, great. Uh, this is <laughs> the divine direction under, under the control which the biblical authors wrote uh, was not physical or a psychological force. It did not detract from, but rather heightened their freedom and their spontaneity and creativity in their writings. That's what we believe. Secondly, inspiration. Oops, hold on. Number two. Inspiration, uh, God is not obliterating somebody's personality, somebody's style, somebody's outlook, somebody's cultural conditioning. It does not mean that uh, God's control of them was imperfect in any way or that somehow they distorted a truth they have been given, they've been given to convey. What it simply means is that God wished to give his people a series of letters written a certain way. So God would take someone like a Paul, and he would have, he would have Paul born when he was, into the family he was, into the conditions that he was, to go through the life circumstances that he did. So when God got Paul around to writing the letters that he did, they'd be written in the way that God intended those letters to be written. Now, I've got to take a little step out of this. If you ever been to the gospel class, uh, you'll see this in our first week. It does not want to. There we go. Okay. So, in the gospel class, we talk about the scriptures coming from God into our lives. And the way this works is simply like this. The first step you have in this of how God gives his word is revelation or inspiration. In Revelation, God reveals himself and the truth to someone. He inspires them, and they begin to write that down. So you start to get the scriptures. They write down what God says in its perfect form. In the originals, we call these the autographs, the autographes. It's the original that God gave these people. They wrote down. Those are infallible in them. So some dude writes it down. You have the original copies. Someone comes along, and they say, oh, God said something to you. I want to know what that is. So next comes the part which is called transmission. 
Transmission is simply a copy. Somebody made a copy of the revelation. You didn't have a printing press back then, so you'd have to write it down word by word. Usually, if you're a Hebrew, what that would be, you'd have a chief scribe. And the chief scribe would be reading the scriptures out, and the, and the other scribes would be copying these words down. When they were done, they would measure left to right, right to left, center word out to make sure everything looked exactly like the original. That's why when you find some copies of the Old Testament scriptures today that are hundreds and thousands of years old, they are exact copies of the ones that we already have because they were, the Jews were so meticulous in how they copied down the scriptures. Now, when you, tra- when you transmit this to get other copies to send them out, over time, people say, well, I want to be able to read that in my language. So you have what's called translation. Translation. Today, we have over 3,000 different translations of the scriptures. So when books are translated into native tongues, the very first uh, English translation of the Bible was initiated by John Wycliffe. It was completed by John Purvey in 1388 A.D., this is why missionaries even today will go into countries where they, where they don't have even a spoken language. And they will put together a spoken language so they can make a Bible so they can give these people the word of God in their own language. After this comes what's called interpretation. This is when someone reads the Bible in their own language. They can understand and determine what the meanings of those verses are. Okay, so interpretation. My goodness, this thing keeps going out. Uh, interpretation. And then in that, you have application. But we believe there's really only one true interpretation. Husbands, love your wives. Only really one interpretation of that. You've got to love your wife. But the application of that is seemingly endless. How do you do that? Take out the garbage for her, rub her feet, you know, bring her chocolates. You, or don't rub her feet. And someone's shaking their head. Okay, whatever. You, know, you, you find those things that, that uh, speak into their life that loves on them. So the applications of these things are endless you know the scripture says you are to love people honor god's image in people there's really only one interpretation of that but the applications of that are endless okay so the interpretation into the application and this is really really important so on this list you look through these things from revelation uh, transmission translation interpretation application where on that list is there the possibility of error to creep in Everything except for revelation inspiration. Transmission, any copy on, you have that fear. So for us, we want to have the oldest and best copies we can of the scriptures to always compare things to. All right, so this goes back into plenary verbal inspiration into number three. If I could just get it to go. Okay, there we go. It, uh, it, plenary inspiration does not mean that somewhere, somehow, a corruption may not have intruded in the course of the transmission of the text. When we talk about the perfectness of the plenary verbal inspiration, that is only in the original documents, only in those. And so the acknowledgement of the Bible's inspiration makes this really urgent for Bible scholars to make sure they go through and find as many copies as they can, as old as they can get them, so they can check them with each other to make sure we have what is correct in our hands so that we can go ahead and get rid of all the corruptions that we find. Uh, I'll talk about this in a minute, but this comes in a thing called textual criticism. Uh, And then number four... The inspiredness of the Bible is not to be equated with the inspiredness of other great literature, even though the Bible is many times great literature. But you don't drop it down to that point to just say, oh, well, the Bible is great literature. If you take a Bible as literature class in college, they destroy the Bible. That seems like their only thing they want to do is destroy the Bible. You think, oh, I'm going to take a Christian class. It's a Bible as literature. It's not. 
It's not. It's a horrible class. They're only there to demean the scriptures. Uh, I think many times the Bible is great literature, but it's not just great literature. The idea of inspiration uh, relates not just to the literary quality of what's written down, but to its character of divine revelation. Okay. Second Peter one twenty one again. For no prophecy was ever produced. Again, this is Pharaoh. This is in the aorist passive tense by the will of man. But this is the word instead, which is called an adversative conjunction. I'm going to lose you. Men spoke from God as they were carried, the word Pharaoh again, along by the Holy Spirit. What it says is it wasn't the will of man who brought this about, but the carrying along of the Spirit as people's wills were joined to the Holy Spirit as they wrote these things down. Plenary verbal inspiration. I lose you yet. We okay? Okay, good. Okay. Now, this is where archaeology can come in. Archaeology is very important because it means that the words that we have were confirmed through archaeology. Uh, the manuscripts have been transmitted accurately. Today, you can turn on everything from Nat Geo to the Discovery Channel to the History Channel, and they're always trying to come up with new programs that are going to discredit the Bible. Oh, have you seen the new book of the Bible we found? Oh, I mean, he even watched the White House, and they can't even quote the Bible correctly. President's speech today, um, he uh, referenced the House action yesterday on the um, In God We Trust motto and said, I trust in God, but God wants to see us help ourselves by putting people back to work. Um, I mean, isn't it a bit much to bring God into the jobs debate? <laughs> well, I believe uh, the f- phrase uh, from the Bible is the Lord helps those who help themselves. And I think the, the point the President... The White House says it must be true. I mean, seriously, can you believe that? How's that? This is why it's important for us to know the scriptures and what it actually says. Because even though Benjamin Franklin said that, so many people think it's actually in the Bible. And it's not in the Bible. There's all kinds of crazy things people say are in the Bible. And so you watch all these programs. They're always trying to come up with new ways to discredit the Bible, say things are in the Bible. This was taken out. That You've got to know what the scriptures actually teach. We must understand that we believe that the Bible cannot and does not err. True inspiration stands with infallibility and inerrancy. We are not saying the men who wrote those scriptures were not fallible. We believe those men were. We are saying the writings that came out that became the scriptures were infallible. If you go to a lot of churches and a lot of seminaries today, that doctrine is under attack. Inerrancy, infallibility, if they don't uh, outright deny it, well, they kind of teach against it. Uh, Karl Barth, who had some decent things to say, was in this regard was horrible because he said the Bible is like a scratched record where you can hear the master's voice in spite of the imperfections of that record. All this are ways to try to get you away from having the Bible and the scriptures as the authority, the measuring line of our lives and of our doctrine. This is supposed to what's come down to something that's called textual criticism. Uh, Textual criticism is also known as what's called lower criticism. And it's supposed to originally mainly concern itself with identification and removal of what those transcription errors, when they started to uh, you know, uh, make more copies. And they're supposed to go back and try and find out where those transcription errors came in so we had the earliest and best copies we could. That's what it was supposed to do, find those things and get rid of those errors in the manuscripts. Essentially, at ancient times, the scribes sometimes would make error. They make an alteration. They maybe fall asleep when they copy things by hand. And so they should, textual criticism was to seek out 
and reconstruct the original as closely as possible. So we'd have the best close to the original that we had. And this came about and then brought about what's called historical criticism, which is also called higher criticism. It's supposed to establish the authorship, the date, and the place of composition of the original text of the scriptures. It's also supposed to investigate the origins of ancient texts in order to understand the world behind the text. But what has happened now with these two criticisms is they have left their original mission. They are no longer following what they originally set out to do. In the 18th century, these two criticisms came together to form what is called biblical criticism. And instead of seeking truth, as originally they intended to do, most criticisms today only seek to go out and destroy the word of God for no other seeming purpose than to try and discredit the word of God. Today, many people claim to be scholars or simply skeptics with axes to grind And they walk through the scriptures and believe anything supernatural cannot actually take place because we live in a natural world. Exactly. That's why we call them miracles and supernatural because they're not natural. Today, in regard to the Bible, you have tons of criticism. You have source criticism, informed criticism, redaction criticism, tradition criticism, canonical criticism, all kinds of other isms, all trying to destroy the word of God as we know it. And that's why it's important for you and I to know how we got the scriptures and what we believe about them. Now, does the Bible contain errors? What do I say? We're in church. Yes. Yes, the Bible that you have in your hands does contain errors. It's okay. Uh, But again, not in the original manuscript, some of the things that we have. Now, they usually come about in transmission or translation because even like when we have the word sin, the sin sin is this Latin word that they tried to use to get this concept of what sin was. Today, we don't even realize sin was an archery term that they used for this word to try to make sense to people. But so you have some words that we can't even translate correctly, so we throw other words on, so it's not actually the original word that they had. It's this word that we use that tries to make sense to us. So sometimes you get a little bit of that in there. And so that's why sometimes like an NIV is good in some instances because it's what's called a thought-for-thought translation. They're trying to give you the entire thought behind it. An element, we typically use the ESV, which is a word-for-word translation. This is why you get breathed out words of God and not inspiration because we want the exact literal translation. Anyway, so in this thing, you have some stuff that will creep in over the centuries. A scribe fell asleep. Maybe he had a baby and didn't get enough sleep the night before when he's copying it down. Maybe the Arby's didn't agree with him. He had to run to the bathroom ten times. I don't know. But they took their eyes off the manuscript and something happened. So these are the types of errors that you will find in the scriptures today. The first one is what is called spelling and nonsense errors. These are very easy to recognize. This happens when a, when a scribe wrote a word down that makes no sense in its given context. It's very easy to pick out. Again, probably because they're really tired and took their eyes off the page, or they write like they're four-year-olds like me. Something like that. Uh, some of these errors are comical. I'll give you one right here. First uh, Thessalonians 2.7 says, But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So we have a manuscript that's out there that in this verse, uh, gentle is the word ipoi, uh, and what they did in this one copy that we have, they used the word hippoi, and hippoi means horses. So it's very easy to pick out because all the other manuscripts actually say hippoi, but this one says hippoi, and it would say, but we were like horses among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Well, that doesn't make sense at all, right? So they're nonsense errors. They're very easy easy to point out. There we go. Okay. Second one is what are called minor changes. Oops, dag, nab it. There we go. Okay. Hey, 
technology sometimes causes problems. It's okay. It's okay. Minor changes. Uh, these sometimes are small as little things missing like uh, the word the or a changed word order. Uh, these can actually vary considerably in Greek, depending on the sentence. Uh, Greek grammar, in some instances, actually allows a sentence to be written up to 18 different ways and still say the same thing. So, again, it's not really like English. So just because a sentence wasn't copied exactly in the same order doesn't mean that we lost the meaning at all. Uh, the next one are called meaningful but not plausible. Uh, so they're errors that, that are meaning but are a plausible reflection of the original text. Again, uh, here's another one out of First Thessalonians chapter 2. Apparently this guy fell asleep a lot. It says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Now, we have a mid-century document, or a a medieval document that actually uses the word the gospel of Christ there. Now, to you and I, that's not a big deal, but to an original translator, that would actually be a huge deal because those are completely different words. But but again, we have tons of other manuscripts that all use the word God there and not Christ, so they go with the, the majority of the older documents, which all agree. This last one is called Meaningful and Plausible, and these are the ones like, Meaningful and Plausible, what's that going to do to us in our faith? Uh, These are ones that actually have meaning, and the alternate reading is plausible, reflection of the original wording. But I'll tell you, these types of errors count for less than 1% of variance, and usually they only include a single word, and if they include more than that, uh, your Bibles today will actually tell you what those are. As an example, the biggest one of these errors is the ending of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we believe the original ending of the Gospel of Mark is gone. We don't know what happened to it. And so they have this ending. If you look at the Gospel of Mark, there's this whole ending in there after the resurrection of all the stuff that takes place. That could have actually been the original ending. But it had disappeared and then came back. And so we don't want anybody to think that we're trying to pull the wool over someone's eyes. So the big footnote in your Bible that says this was not in the earliest manuscripts. They would let you know. Uh, John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery. He who is without sin can cast the first stone. Not in the earliest manuscripts. And you have a note in your Bibles that say that because they want you to know what is not in the earliest manuscripts. They want you to make sure that you are comfortable with the scriptures you have in front of you and you can rely on them to be true. So, is the Bible reliable? Yes, it is reliable. You're going to say that because you're just in church anyway. But the reliable, the reliability of the English translations of the scriptures depend largely on the quantity and quality of the manuscript evidence that we have. The quality depends in part on how recent the manuscripts are or how old they are. I'm reading a book right now by Andreas Kostenberger, and what he's doing is he's ripping apart Bart Ehrman because Ehrman said we don't have manuscripts that are early enough and we can't trust them. Our manuscript evidence today is really, really impressive. Uh, we have uh, probably 20-plus uh, documents that date previous to the 2nd century, written in the 100s of the Gospels. Um, written, uh, the Gospel accounts are probably completed somewhere between 50 and 100 A.D., the entire New Testament. So we have copies that are within 100 years of the originals. Now, you've got you to gotta just think, if you wrote something down on a piece of paper, which is probably a lot more durable than some of the papyrus they use, think what's going to happen to that in 1,000 years. I mean, seriously, you leave it in your car for a week and it turns brown. It's like, oh my goodness, I can't even read my receipt anymore. I just got it yesterday from McDonald's. We shouldn't eat McDonald's anyway if it's horrible. But, it's, but it, it's that kind of thing. You've got to think, you got thousands of years later, and so it's hard to have because they wrote on things that actually disintegrated. This is why they had to make lots and lots of copies to continue to send these things out. Um, 
Recently, Dan Wallace announced that he found a new fragment of the Gospel of Mark that dates back into the first century, placing it within 50 years of the original documents. I have another book called Eyewitness to Jesus, where they believe they have copies or little pieces of the Gospel of Matthew that date to the late 40s or early 50s. So we're very, very close on some of them that we have. Uh, manuscripts that date before AD 400, number 99. I think they're actually up to about 125 of those now uh, with more archaeology. Um, we actually even have one complete New Testament in there as well. So the gaps between the originals and the inerrant copies is very slim. And when you look at the Bible, you might, might think, well, that's not a whole lot. Well, when you look at any other ancient work of antiquity that scholars all agree that are, are worthwhile to read and accurate, there's a huge, huge disparity. I'll give you some. So you have this guy. His name is... His name is... Keynote doesn't want to work. Uh, his name is Mephistides, and he did this. He wrote a book called The Histories of the Peloponnesian War. Uh, he lived between 460 and 400 B.C. Virtually everything we know about this war comes from this guy. The earliest copy of the manuscripts of his work dates around 900 A.D. That makes a 1,300-year time gap, and we have 20 copies now dated after that time that are of his things. Um, Roman historian Suetonius lived around A.D. 70 to A.D. 140. The earliest copy of his work that's most well-known is called the Twelve Caesars. And the earliest copy we have of that is AD 950. That's a gap of about 800 years. And we have about 200 copies now of that. I'll give you some more. Uh, Pliny wrote a histories. And uh, he wrote somewhere between 61 A.D. to 113 A.D. The earliest copy we have is his of 850 A.D. It's 750 years. And we have seven copies. How about Aristotle? You learn about him in philosophy, right? Okay, so Aristotle, right? He wrote 384 to 322 B.C. The earliest copies we have are about 1100 A.D. That's a 1400-year gap, and we have five copies. Scholars today will tell you that they believe that these manuscripts are accurate, that they are the words of these guys, even though there is this gap in time between them. When you come to the New Testament, we have Greek manuscripts 5,700 Greek manuscripts. 5,700. You compare that to Seatonius's 200, that all scholars agree those are accurate. 5,700 Greek copies of the New Testament. I mean, if you, if you went through and you looked at all the New Testament copies uh, from Latin, anything before the printing press, we have 20,000 copies of the New Testament. 20,000. Is this on? I mean, come on. It's just, it's, it is just crazy. So here, I think I got this on here because it kind of froze on me again, but. Okay. 20, there you go, 20,000. I keep expecting to play some sound every time. Ding, ding. And so when someone says to you, hey, well, you know, the Bible has errors in it, you can reply by, you know what, the, the scriptures, they do have some errors in it. But let me tell you about them. And then you can tell about them. And then you can say, and, and of those, none of those errors affect any Christian doctrine. None of them whatsoever. And actually, most scholars uh, hold on to all these other things that say, actually, you know what's even more amazing than that? You can be more sure of the scriptures you have in your hands and even the writings of Shakespeare. Crazy, right? 
crazy. What? Yeah, I know. It's just crazy. It's just crazy. The Bible is, in fact, the most reliable book of antiquity that we have. And contrary to popular assertion, as time rolls on, we don't get farther and farther away. We get earlier and earlier manuscripts to go farther and farther back to the original so we can always be sure what we have. Uh, Dan Wallace says that we have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to the biblical documents. And so I would like to use Paul Mill's philosophical argument from a couple weeks ago. And I would like to say the Bible is the most reliable and trustworthy document of history because then on the basis of that we have sufficient evidence to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God because it historically tells us so. Thirdly, Jesus Christ teaches the Bible is the very Word of God. In conclusion, since the Bible is the Word of God, Christianity is true. Bam! <laughs> all right, all right. I've got to go to some more stuff. Okay, my time. Bam. Okay, half an hour. Good. All right. I'm, I'm, I, I, right here, i got a big note that says time. Check it. Good. Okay. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to hit issues of authenticity, and this will all come together and make sense to you by the time that we're done. Um, the Bible's historical reliability is really asking two questions when you look at it. First off, is the Bible that we have today an accurate copy of the originals? And we can say, yes. You know, do we have what they wrote? The second thing is, well, did the, what the biblical writers write, what did they write, did it actually happen? Or were they making stuff up? You know, because it's not enough to know that we have the book of Matthew that Matthew wrote. You have to show why it's reasonable to believe that what Matthew wrote actually took place. And so we call this authenticity. Authenticity. Uh, during the first generation of Christian leaders, referred to, we call them the church fathers, you have numerous quotes from the New Testament scriptures. For example, Clement of Alexandria lived AD 150 to 212 AD. In his writings, you will find 2,406 quotes from all but three books of the New Testament. Tertullian, uh, elder in the church in Carthage, lived AD 160 to AD 220, quotes the New Testament 7,258 times. Of these quotes, 3,800 of those are from the gospel accounts themselves. Uh, other quotes include Justin Martyr, 330 quotes, Irenaeus, 1,819 quotes, Origen, 17,922 quotes, Hippolytus, 1,378 quotes, Eusebius, 5,176 quotes, making a total of 36,289 quotes from the New Testament. Now, what is interesting about these quotes from the New Testament is that you could destroy every manuscript of the New Testament that we have, every single one, destroy them all in existence, and you could Produce, reproduce all but 11 verses of the New Testament from those quotes. Okay? When it comes to checking and cross-checking the reason of the New Testament, it really stands the historical test. Okay, now, did the, what the biblical writers write really happen? Okay, that, that is the question. And you've got to be really careful when you come and look at this because there's a difference between history and philosophy. And you can spend a ton of time trying to argue history when someone's trying to argue philosophy with you. It does no good for you to argue about the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ if your opponent is denying the possibility of miracles because that's philosophical. Okay, so you might have a come to a head in this. Whether miracles can occur or not is a whole other issue. The arguments and evidences need to prove something philosophically are different than historically. So you've got to figure out how you're arguing. Now, when you come to ancient stuff, I think I told you this in a message a few weeks ago that C.S. Lewis said that today we seem to hold to a thing called chronological snobbery, where modern thinkers, we somehow have gotten to the notion that ancient writers are pre-scientific and thus uninterested in accuracy. 
that, oh, they just knew they were writing myths and legends, and they just wrote those things out. Actually, uh, the ancient writers understood the difference between myths and actual histories, and the New Testament writers never offered any of their writings to be considered myths at all. As far as New Testament biblical writers were concerned, the historical accuracy of the events that took place were indispensable to what they believed, the significance of the Christian faith. It is why Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 15, 13 through 17, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, going to an historical thing, then not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise. If it is true, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. It was very important to them of the historical accuracy of what they were saying. So the historical testimonies of New Testament events, particularly the life of Jesus, are from eyewitness events. And so when you establish that authenticity and reliability, you have to know a couple things. Isn't it reasonable to believe that the eyewitnesses of the New Testament events were willing and able to tell the truth? Were they able to tell the truth? Or were they just some knuckleheads that Jesus found on the side of the road? I'll take the dumbest ones I can find. That'll be great. No, are they, are they able to? The early followers of Jesus, what you have to realize, had absolutely nothing to gain and everything to lose by claiming what they did. The reliability, the eyewitness testimony can't be negated. If somebody, if somebody can come along and, and say, oh, well, they're going to make a profit on that, that was going to help them. Actually, it was the exact opposite for the New Testament writers. Uh, it was not a lucrative business because the gospel was free. Not only was there nothing to gain, but there was everything to lose by claiming what they did about Jesus. It was their Christian commitment that brought about their martyrdom of every single apostle with the, with the exception of probably John. The most reasonable explanation for why the New Testament writers claimed to be the witnesses of the things that they did is that they actually saw them. Uh, is there presence of any adverse testimony that could take place? Now, Paul kind of talked about this last week. If the witnesses' testimonies were false, well, surely they could just produce something else that says, look, that's false. Here's the true thing over here. And what's really interesting is the enemies of Christianity did not so much try to contradict the claims of Christianity. They tried to start offering different reasons for it. Oh, no, no, no. It didn't happen because of that. It happened because of this. Matthew 28, 12 through 15. And when they had assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now, if it is not the case that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, just go get the body. Just show everybody. Just show us Jesus' body. Um, the early Christians were always appealing to knowledge of the people who saw things. I mean, Paul's like, you know what? 500 of you saw him at one time. Any one of those 500 people could have said, no, I didn't. But they didn't. But they didn't. And so this comes into what are called earmarks of history. These are characteristics which indicate the historical authenticity of documents. Uh, so when scholars examine historical narrative, they look for indicators which could point to the historical authenticity. Uh, there are several examples of these in the New Testament. Uh, and I did put them on there? No, okay. Um, so here, here, I'll give you a couple. Uh, Jesus' sayings, uh, the literary form that Jesus used, well, I, actually wasn't used at the time that they wrote the Gospels. It was only used at the time when Jesus was teaching. 
which is really interesting. So Jesus would teach like the rabbis. They would have him using expressions like verily, verily, or amen, amen, or truly, truly. And the significance of that is that those forms were not by used by the writers when they wrote down the Gospels. They were used in a time earlier than that. And you cannot explain where the writers have Jesus talking the way he does and claiming the things that he does unless he actually said those things in the time that he did because they would have changed how he said things if they just wrote them and made them up. Secondly, there's material in the gospel accounts which was irrelevant to any issues in the early church. Because if they were just trying to make up things that was going to help them in the early church, they would have written specifically about those things in the early church. For example, by the time the gospels were written, there was no more controversies about the Sabbath. And so you cannot explain why Jesus is always going after the Pharisees about the Sabbath because it wasn't based on the needs of the early church. It was conversations he actually had with those people. There's material lacking in the gospel accounts, which would have been extremely relevant to the early church. Like, there's all kinds of issues going on. Jesus' teaching doesn't really teach on circumcision, on gifts like tongues. We wish he would. (laughs) Food laws, food sacrifice to idols, he doesn't really talk about things. If the writers are going to fabricate a story to help themselves out, they would include those things. Well, Jesus said... Don't get circumcised. Oh, well, there it is. You know, he doesn't do any of that stuff. If they're only trying to help themselves, they would have written them completely differently. Uh, there's also material in the gospel accounts that was counterproductive to the purpose of the writings themselves. And if you were to make up a story, you would not expect to find some of the embarrassing features that are in there. But there's tons of them in the gospel accounts. Look like what idiots the disciples look like half the time. If you're trying to make yourself look good, you wouldn't put that in there. I was an idiot. I cut off somebody's ear. That was me. You know, I mean, you, you don't do that stuff. Uh, the gospel writers have, have women finding the first people that find the body missing are women. Women, I'm not, not don't be mad. I'm just saying, okay, at the time, women were like worthless. It's like you, they couldn't testify in a court of law. The women found Jesus. Oh, well, that just screwed you right there. I mean, you wouldn't do that if it wasn't actually the case. Some things about Jesus' words in his life tr- proved to be troublesome. Someone comes to Jesus and they say, good teacher. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Didn't deny that he was good, but that's what he says. And, and it's like, oh, today we still deal with questions about that verse. Why would they write that down? That doesn't help us at all. His display of anger, uh, the unbelief of his own family. There are all these things. The most reasonable explanation for why the New Testament writers include those features is that they actually took place. And Paul talked about this last week a little bit as well. Extra biblical references. Uh, Sometimes people will criticize the scriptures and say, oh, well, you know, there's nothing outside the Bible that talks about things in the Bible, and so it's not really reliable. Actually, it's not true. I'll give you just a couple of things outside the scriptures that talk about things in the scripture. Uh, Say Eutonius, in his book, The Twelve Caesars, we have 200 copies, 5,700 of the Greek New Testament again, okay? Uh, He wrote this. Because the Jews at Rome caused continuous disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, and that's a Latin reference to Christ, he, Claudius, expelled them from the city. That is the same thing that happens in Acts 18, 18 verse 2. Same events. Okay? Uh, Tacitus, in his work, The Annals of Rome, says to suppress this rumor, and this is about the fires in Rome were, were deliberately set, uh, Nero fabricated scapegoats and punished with every refinement the notoriously depraved Christians, as they were properly called. The originator Christ had been executed in Tiberius' reign by the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate. The Jewish historian Josephus, I like to call him the Roman historian because he's a turncoat, uh, mentioned that the, mar- the martyrdom of the apostle James uh, refers to James as Jesus' brother, mentions the martyrdom of John the Baptist, and mentions Jesus as well. Roman historian Thallus, 
52 AD, quoted by Julius Africanus, talks about the darkness that took place at the crucifixion. Uh, the Roman author Nicator Pliny the Younger's uh, document of 112 AD mentions the early Christians' worship of Christ. Ken Rhodes writes this. He says, Modern biblical scholarship has become an elegant dance with unbelief because of how we treat the Bible today. And it's so true. It's true. Today, actually, when you talk about the scriptures, you will hear about this document, and it's called Q. The Q document. And I know if you like Star Trek, you like Q, sweet. If you like Star Trek, you have no idea what I'm talking about. So whatever. Okay. So what they say is that, well, Matthew had to depend on outside sources for his gospel. So he looked at Mark. You know, Luke did the same thing. Luke actually tells you he did that. He interviewed all these people to, to talk about it. But they say all, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all depended on this document called Q, this outside document, because their stories match too well. Now, no one has ever found a hint of Q. We have never found this Q document. It isn't anywhere, but they all say it must exist. Why? Because they can't trust the biblical text. They can't, well, they, they can't really have all seen the same event and all kind of say the same thing. They, they can't do that. They say Matthew, Mark, and Luke are too similar. Duh! Duh! You know, there, you know there's actually about a 40% difference in those three accounts. Now, if they all said the same thing, we would say, oh, collusion. They copied each other, but there's a 40% difference. Oh, so they must have just used a separate common document they all drew their information from. Statistically speaking today, if four people walk out of this class and a year from now I have you write down the things that you saw and learned tonight, you know what difference you will get? 40%. 40%. That's about what you will get. And so you see that exact thing in the scriptures. It is legitimate eyewitness testimony. Now, people sometimes say, well, what about the Gospel of John? Well, John, we believe, was written after all the other gospel accounts, and John had a completely different agenda that he was actually taking care of. And so his gospel is written completely differently. has some things in the other ones, but his is more Jesus is God. He is the Messiah. He's, you know, it's, he's, it's written to Greeks, but it means nothing here or there. I'm 45 minutes. Can I give you more, some more stuff? Okay. All right. All right. Um, no, 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 no. I'm going to skip that. that. Okay. Um, Okay, hold on. There we go. Okay. Uh, so why did the canon officially get put together? How did it do that? Well, I'm going to start with this. Colossians 4.16, Paul says, And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. What you see here is that the apostles originally intended for all of their letters to be read in other churches and to be passed around. We see the canon of scripture, the words that we have, started from day one with the apostles. Norman Geisler says this, This clearly shows that the apostolic letters were intended to have a broader application than just one congregation. And so what they were doing is they're binding on the church these letters that went out. They passed them around when they started to receive these canonical writings. In Revelation 1.11, Jesus says to John, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Now, at this time, when Jesus tells John to do this, the only thing that they were allowed to read in the churches as Scripture was what they considered to be Scripture. So if you're reading something in a church, that was Scripture. This is huge implications for what Jesus just said to John in Revelation. Sent to the seven churches so they can read this to each other. Huge implications. So John's going to make at least seven copies, and he's going to send this thing out. That's how Scripture came about. Why we have so many copies. It is copying, collecting, passing on. Copy, collecting, passing on. Copy, collect, passing on. That's what they did. First Peter 1.1, to those who are the elect exiles in the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. He is intending all of those places to read his letter. 
So Peter would copy, send it out, or he'd have a scribe copy it and send it out. And those churches would get copies. They'd collect and they'd pass it on. They'd copy, they'd collect, and they'd pass it on. They'd copy, they'd collect, and they'd pass it on. One of the reasons we actually have more copies of the gospel accounts than anything else is what they would typically do is they would bind letters of the apostles together with the gospel accounts, and they would then start sending those out. So you have tons of copies of the gospel accounts that are out there. And so when those things uh, went out, you see that the early church had a canon from the very, very beginning. Uh, the four Gospels were there. The apostolic writings were there. Uh, and so people say, well, why did the church actually have to put together a Bible? Uh, there's a few different reasons, and I'll give you those. They're a lot more deeper than this, and maybe we'll do a church history class at some point, and I'll explain it to you because it's crazy some of the stuff that happened. Uh, but the first one is ecclesiastical, because again, there had to be the public reading of the scriptures. And so as the church church grew and went to more and more places, a lot of places like in different geographical areas said, what are we supposed to read when we gather together? Like, oh, good question. So they had to come up with these books that said, these are the canonical books, these are the apostolic writings, these are the gospels, this is what you read in your public gatherings. And so as it goes on farther and farther, you've got to translate those again into new languages so more people can read them, and it goes farther and farther. The second reason is theological. Uh, uh, the generation that, that follows the, the, the original church apostles were known as the church apologists, and after them comes like the time that we call the theologians. The theologians. And because the church wanted to know what was true about what was handed down. In 1 Peter 1, 10-12, it says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels uh, long to, things into which angels long to look. This is the idea that they would read these scriptures. Paul, uh, Peter actually calls Paul's writings scriptures. It's kind of amazing. Uh, there's also at this time the problem of heresy and this whole theological thing. Uh, the most famous heretic, we're going to actually talk about him towards the end of this year in the Sermon on the Mount series. Uh, this guy's name is Marcion. Marcion comes about in AD 140, and he really made the church say this is what Scripture and what isn't, because Marcion hated the Old Testament, hated the Old Testament. God wanted to get rid of any references, so essentially he kind of truncated the entire Bible. He just kept Paul and Luke, and that was it, and, the, and he's gaining a large following. The church is like, no, 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 this is not how this works. And so they came and said, these are our accepted books. And the last reason, man, you're really going today. Uh, the last reason is political. Always is, right? Always, right? So as the church grows, the empire uh, comes to different persecutions. The largest one is probably what's called the Diocletian persecution. And they came in and they tried to destroy all the scriptures by fire. And so Christians want to know, what do we stand up for? What do we hold on to? Because if you come to me and say, we're going to kill you if you don't give us your scriptures, well, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to die over my C.S. Lewis or my John Calvin or any of that stuff. You hear, take them and, and burn them. But they want to know, what do I stake my life on? What do I live and die for? And so they wanted to set those books out. And so the question becomes, how did they determine these books? Okay, number one. Number one. Uh, the book had to be inspired by God, meaning it had authority. And so that means it showed the signs that the writings had been inspired. Uh, secondly, uh, the book had to be shown as prophetic. That doesn't just mean it tells the future. That means it also tells the truth. Uh, the word prophecy in the scriptures means bringing forth truths. Okay? So it had to be written by an approved apostle. Thirdly, 
It had to be authentic. It had to be written in the generation of those eyewitnesses. This is why today when you hear about things like the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Nicodemus, the Apocalypse of Peter, none of them made it for they weren't first century documents. And they stand out that way as well. Here, um, I'll actually read you a couple quotes from the Gospel of Thomas, and you will see the difference of these. See, they believe the Gospel of Thomas was written by people called the Gnostics. And the Gnostics believed that flesh was evil and the spirit was good. Kind of like today. Oh, how spiritual are you? Oh, that's really funny. When God intends for you know, our physical and our spiritual to come together and worship him. But anyway, so the Gnostics love this stuff. So here, I'll, I'll read you a couple uh, verses out of the Gospel of Thomas, and you'll see why you can tell it's not a Gospel account. Simon Peter said to them, Make Mary leave us, for females don't deserve life. Jesus said, Look, I will guide her to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every female who makes herself male will enter the domain of heaven. Ooh. But if you ever read Gnostic writings, you'd be like, that sounds like Gnostic writing, because it is Gnostic writing. That's, That's what they sound like. Jesus said, whoever knows the father and the mother will be called the child of a whore. What? I know my mom and my dad. Oh, no. Mm, Just some really crazy stuff in here. Um, I'll let you read it later if you want to look at it. But... um, Here's one. Uh, This is Jesus said, How miserable is the body that depends... How miserable is the body that depends on the body and how miserable is the soul that depends on these two? What? This is, that, that's the Gospel of Thomas. It's Gnostic writing. It makes no sense whatsoever. You know, it's, it's not a first century document. And, and again, it's like I say in, in the Gospel class, if you have to slap like an apostle's name on something for people to like read it, well, you're not trustworthy enough to begin with. And so you shouldn't be reading it whatsoever because you're, you're just lying. They're just, okay, sorry. I'll get to see you guys ask questions. Um, number four, the book had to be life-changing. That means it's transforming in nature. People... Uh, number five, the book ad, had adhered to what's called the rule of faith. This is what you would call the regula fide. Uh, is consistent with the preaching of the apostles, what you see and know from like the book of Acts. Jesus died, rose on the third day for our sins. Uh, and again, so you read crazy things in the Gospel of Thomas, and you're like, holy crap. The regula fide is, in quotes, that which was everywhere and received by all the church. That's what they would call it. And number six, the book needed to be received by the church. Was it read publicly and when they got the apostolic writings they would immediately start reading those in their churches they would send those other churches and begin to read those now you have a whole bunch of extraneous stuff at the end i just put in there for you this is just different archaeological stuff that they found so you can look at that if you want to and at the end there's some different prophecy stuff that's been fulfilled in jesus and so you guys can just look at all that later i just gave it to you so you can actually have it okay so Five minutes and it's been an hour. So, questions? Um, yes. What were some of the like, earmarks when you say the book had to be inspired by God? What were some of the criteria that was like, okay, yes, yeah, it has to be inspired by God? Typically, it would be something where it transformed. Oh, sorry. Uh, what were the earmarks when you said it had to be inspired by God? You know, what were the earmarks of that? You know, uh, some of that would be the historical reliability of it. Uh, it would be the transformative nature of it, because when you read Jesus' words in the Scripture, it transforms us. Uh, when you read like the apostles' words, you know, it is. You, you can tell the difference between other writings 
and inscripturated writings because of the, of the power that comes from those writings. Uh, you know, like when you, when you read, like, say, the book of Ephesians. I mean, we're, it, it's kind of funny. We're going through the Sermon on the Mount, and yet Sunday again I'm talking a little bit out of the book of Ephesians because of how it, how it changes people's lives. And so they would see that begin to happen by people who would read those books. And so they would take those and pass those out, and they would say, that is... Again, and at that time, you really did have... I mean, like, you know, you have, like, Justin Martyr, you know, trained by one of the apostles. You have uh, Polycarp, you know, trained by the apostle John. And so you have these guys also in the early church who knew what they were teaching and was able to say, well, this is, and this isn't, and this isn't, and this isn't. So are those questions only, like, applied to New Testament scripture and Old Testament yeah. Yeah, um, in the Old Testament scriptures, there there is really, I talk about this in the gospel class as well, but there there is really no question about the Old Testament scriptures, R- really none. The the Jews accept them uh, at the fall of Jerusalem in seventy A.D. The the Old Testament that we have is essentially that exact. Now, I mean, like First Second Kings is one book, you know, First Second Samuel is one book. They they break you know they break it up a little differently than we do, but it's the same books, and there is really no question about those books. Because the Jews are so meticulous on how they copy their scriptures. I mean, it's why, you know, the little dude can go traipsing around in the, in the Dead Sea and find the book of Isaiah. And it's like, holy crap, this is the exact same copy we've had. Wow. Yes? Who keeps all these things? <laughs> you know who keeps them? Museums. They don't want anybody to touch them anymore. Uh, actually, it's interesting right now. Uh, Dan Wallace is, uh, you can actually, on, in this article, uh, I, I might be in the, I put a link, I don't know if it's in that article there, but they actually took it and showed pictures of some of these things, and they're, and they're really small, because again, you know, everything's kind of brittle, and they're rolled up, and so what they have to do is take all this time to, to like, get water back in them, and so they can open them up, and then they've got to shoot them with light so they can read what's on them, and it takes them forever to do this, but, I mean, they, they are really serious about finding older and older manuscripts, so we are positive about what we have in our scriptures today. Um, so you say you use the ESV mostly. Yes. What accounts for the different translations, and does it break down the? <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Uh, basically, there are three types of translation. There is like a word-for-word translation. There is a thought-for-thought translation. Then it's called a paraphrase. So a word-for-word translation would be like the New American Standard, the the ESV, like we use. A thought-for-thought would be like a. Like, no, no, message is paraphrase. Um, would be an NIV. It would be like an International Children's Bible, which I think they now rebrand it as the New Century Version. Um, and so you have paraphrases, which like the Living Bible. Not the New Living, but the New Living tries to be a thought for thought, but they have some really horrible translations in it. Um, but uh, you have the Living Bible. Um, uh, I can't remember what the other one's called. It was like really big in like the 80s and had like a picture of a dove on the front. I don't know. That one. Uh, the message is a paraphrase. And, and, and the thing about paraphrases is they tend to be very contemporary, and the, and the big word behind that is temporary. Because, you know, you read, you read like, the, the Living Bible now, and it's like, this doesn't make any sense. I'm not a hippie. You know? and, and so if you, if, you read the, if you read the message, you know, I, you give the message probably another 15, 20 years, and it's not going to make sense either. I mean, there, there are some things in the message that are actually very good translations of stuff as a paraphrase. You know, there are some things that I, I don't think are good, but there are some things that are actually really good. I mean, a lot of people knock Eugene Peterson, poor guy, um, but uh, he's he's written a lot of good books. Okay, so if you hate the message, you know, like no MSG. You know, if you, if you if you hate the message, 
there are some other books. Like he's, he's got a great book on uh, following Jesus called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Excellent book. Excellent book. So don't just knock it because you don't like the message. I mean, we don't use the message, so I guess I, I'm knocking it too. But, um, you know. Yes. Sometimes they really do help. If you have when, a when couple of the different ones, yeah, sometimes certain words it really that is so when much you're more studying. When, it's if you know good what to read it saying. in a couple like, different like again, translations. You know, the, the right. Because then you can really get kind of a broader perspective of what they're really trying to say. And if you're still not getting, you're not quite grasping it, if you can use the message as say, a third alternate to try to put it in your uh, 21st century. In four places where the word propitiation should be used. And propitiation and atonement are two completely different things. You know, atonement is like covering a sin. Propitiation includes two words. One is propitiation, one's called expiation. Sorry, I'm losing the all you on this. Um, but, but expiation is like taking away that sin, but propitiation is not only taking it away, but it's making a favorable relationship again. And so there are places where it said, you know, where the NIV was saying, and God made atonement through Christ, and it's actually God made propitiation through Christ. It's not just that God covered it. He made the relationship right again between us. Yes? The Old Testament, the Old Testament apocrypha, right? Not the because these because like Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Mary are, are considered New Testament apocrypha. Yeah, that's what they call them. They call them the Suda, the Sudapagrapha. Okay, um, those those books usually were ones, and it depends on what you read. I because there's actually an another four or eight chapters on the end of the Book of Esther. Um, they're you know Tobit and Wisdom, Maccabees are like historical books, and and that's in the only place you ever see anything like the doctrine of uh, purgatory. Is like one spot in an apocryphal book. Uh, the apocrypha were uh, Martin Luther said the apocryphal books they they weren't bad but they weren't scripture. It, it'd be kind of like you know your your C.S. Lewis or things today. It's not that they're necessarily bad. They're just they're just not on par with scripture. And the Jews didn't consider them scripture. I mean, when you you get the Council of Trent during the Reformation, uh, one of the things that was the backlash of that is is those books came, became canonical for the Catholic Church in their tradition. Now, before that, it was in and out and in and out and in and out, but as soon as that took place, it was, boom, we, this is our difference from you, and they're back in, and you're just, you're just set. So it's, you know, and, and again, I, I mean, I'm, I'm a good reform boy, but uh, a reaction to something is never the best way to do theology. Like, even the five points of Calvinism, they are a reaction to what's called the remonstrance, which is the five points of Arminianism, and so you don't, we can talk about this at another class. Okay, she's asking me, what are my thoughts on mosaic authorship of the book of Genesis? I'm assuming the Torah. Okay, 
because if you take college classes, what they will tell you is that there's all these different authors in the book of Genesis. I think it actually lines up exactly with, I think Moses is the author, because what you will see in the book of Genesis is it will say, on the first day, da 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 da, da and God did this, and said it was good, and, he said, and then Moses will make a commentary on it. Now, da 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 da, and then he adds I think a lot of the book of Genesis are those patriarchal accounts that have been down and Moses making commentary through it and putting it together so it's understandable to the children of God. Because if you, if you read through those books, they're, they're all this idea of they're in Exodus now. They're in this desert, and, and God's, you know, started out the book of Genesis, and God's bringing land out of the water, and he's, he's going to make this promised land for these, for these children of his. And, this, and, and it all kind of goes together. And I think, I think Moses, I, I, think, I think it's Moses. Not only just because Jesus said it, but you know, and that's probably the best one I could probably go to. Um, but I, I think that it was it was standard stories that were handed down like that, and Moses put them together, and under the again authorship of God and direction of the Holy Spirit. I think if you, if you've got to come down and figure out, you know, who do you trust? I trust Jesus, and Jesus said Moses did it, so I'm cool. Except for maybe the end when it says Moses was the most humble man who ever lived. Moses, you know. <laughs> I think maybe somebody like Joshua that tagged the end of, anyway, the Torah, but that's just my thoughts. I'm like five minutes over, so we're good. Okay, I'm going to pray. Uh, next week, what are we doing? Other world views. So, so conflicting views to Christianity is what we're going to talk about next week. And then the last week, we're going to talk about the problems with Christianity. Like, uh, if God is all-powerful and God is all-good, why is there suffering in the world? So we're going to talk about stuff like that. All right, Uh, Father, thank you so much for being a good and holy God that has revealed yourself to us and given us the scriptures that we can read, and not only read, but that we can actually trust. And I ask that when crazy things come up on TV that just sound weird and odd, like when someone tries to say say the Bible says some crazy thing, we'd recognize that as just some crazy thing because we realize that the words in the scriptures are so right and so true, and and they are transforming. And so we would be those who simply begin to trust you. And when we have questions, we would go to you and to other people who know things about it so that we could be more and more those who are grounded solid in our trust and our faith in you. Amen.